that I should probably get going. Okay. And I guess into. And for, for, for those of us for those who have arrived on time, and for those of you who do know me or don't know me, my name is John Batsis. I'm uh, one of the geriatricians across the street. And on this side, I have multiple hats. One of them is as an educator, the other is as a, cl a clinician researcher. And uh, a lot of my work, uh, academic work, has really focused on the interplay between our emerging obesity epidemic and overweight epidemic and the interplay with muscle mass and muscle function and how it impacts uh, older adults in, you know, to remain independent over the course of the, their lifespans. Um, so what I'm going to give you today, hopefully, is a, a good bit of information. I encourage you to stop me uh, as I'm kind of talking and um, with any questions that you may have and kind of share not only some of my the work that I've done, but really kind of give you an overview of what is this whole overweight and over 60 <coughs> that I'm talking about, why it's important, <coughs> and what can we do about it more importantly, mm -hmm. and what questions. So this the purpose today is not for me to give any specific medical advice, and I always kind of give that disclaimer because everybody is, is different, everybody's an individual, and this really is for you to get talking points that you can bring back to your uh, primary care provider uh, and uh, share with him or her, uh, hey, you know what, that Batsis guy said X, uh, can we talk about it? So I'm going to shut the door a little bit, leave it a little bit of a jar. If you get too hot, you just scream out or start throwing some tomatoes or one of those things. So, so as just with any talk, I always kind of just give disclosures, just I think it's important for everybody in the audience to know. Uh, I am funded by the National Institutes of, of Aging from the National Institutes of Health. I have a grant, a uh, five-year grant, that is looking at um, engaging, using technology, and I'll, I'll share a little bit at the tail end of using technology to engage patients in improving their health, and older adults in improving their health. Uh, I also am funded by uh, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, and here are Dartmouth Centers for uh, Aging, and we have some uh, funding from the Centers for Disease Control. and from uh, one of the other institutes as well at the, at the NIH. So I just want to kind of put that out there, and you can make the determinations uh, how this influences or not uh, what I'm sharing. So, so I care for older adults clinically. One of the things that I love about my job, and one of the reasons, one of the things that got me to here, hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, is I care for, solely for older adults. As a, as a clinician, as a geriatrician, and that's what kind of drove me into med school residency fellowship and the like. So one of the things I want to when I want to share with you, and this is something that most folks know, is that our demographics are changing, and I'll kind of give you some evidence of that. So we see here that the top of the pyramid, you see this is back in 1950 here, that the top of the pyramid, with this is the red line, the number of folks living past the age of 65 is very very small. And because of life expectancy and improvements in medical advances, this pyramid has actually changed to more of a, a, more of a top uh, square. So you see in 1990 here, it's kind of increasing. So the top, the top end of the, the, that pyramid is no longer a pyramid. So older adults, according to the recent sur uh, census survey, account for just about 15, 16% of the population here in the United States. 
and the projected population of those over the age of 65. And we use the word, you know, elderly, which is not my favorite term, uh, and that's, you know, I really prefer the term older adults. Uh, but for the, for the purposes of what has been kind of brought on from societal standpoints from the distant past, we know that those living past the age of 65, so the proportion of individuals here in the United States, is actually set to be almost a, a 20, 20 to 25%. And you can see in the year 2060, 24% of the population will be over the age of 65. Now, that's important because the fastest growing segment of the population are those over the age of 85. Fastest growing segment of the population. So you can see here, and I, and I apologize, I didn't put percentages. By the year 2060, about 6% of the population will be over the age of 85. And seniors and older adults in this age group are the ones at risk for higher risk of medical issues, medication errors, and um, hospitalizations and the like. So this is important, that we need something that we need to keep in, in mind. Now, why did this occur? Well. I'd like to say that the medical community got better at what they did. That's that's part of it, but without you know. But importantly, life expectancy we know has in, increased considerably. So there, when we think about the lifespan, patients live a normal life, fully functional, able to do X, Y, and Z. Then, in their latter years, they develop a, a disability of some sort, and I'll talk about that a little bit. And then, then then we know one of the certainties in life is. You're born, you pay taxes, and you die. And, and again, not to sound you know cut and dry, but really, that period of disability has actually increased as life expectancy. So people are patients are living longer periods of disability-free years, but that period of disability has increased as well. So then that's the period that we as care providers need to try to minimize, if at all possible. And I'm giving you this background. There's, a re there's always a method to my madness, as I like to say. But I'm going to talk about what we talk about in typical <coughs> daily living. You may have heard this term coined by your, uh, your, your primary care provider. If not, that's what I'm here to kind of share that with you. When we think about activities of daily living, I think about basic and instrumental. Basic activities of daily living is everything every single one of us in this room does every single day when you wake up. And this... When you have an impairment in one of these, this is what lands folks into nursing homes. Because of inability to do multiple activities of day living at home. Instrumental activities of day living, when I teach to my trainees, I say, this is everything a medical student and a resident does on their day off. So they shop, they housekeep, they do their banking, they drive their car, but this is something you can actually get people to do for you and still remain independent. And this is important because the longer you live, if you live to 126 years of age, which I believe is the record for the person that's lived the longest in life here on this planet, you will develop every single disability under the sun, these, these basic activities of daily living. So the longer you live, the higher the risk of you developing this. And then throw in medical problems like weight, then you've got a real problem as I'll show you. And it's important because if I ask a hundred people, how important is it for you to stay in your home? 
as long as possible versus going to a nursing home, 90% of you will say, I want to stay in my own home. To be honest with you, I've been practicing for about 15 years now. I think I've come across maybe one or two patients that have said, yep, put me in a nursing home, please. There are other issues there, but that's it. But this key concept of independence is so important in, 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 in old, older adulthood. Okay. Excuse me? Yes. Before you go to that slide, yep. what is oh, SNFA? Great. Sorry for the abbreviations. Thank this is uh, I, uh, I get faulted by using too many abbreviations, and I apologize. Thank you for, for raising that. A SNF is a skilled nursing facility. An ALF is an assisted living facility. Thank you. So again, patients want to stay home. That's, that's, that's key. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I spent the first couple of minutes here talking to you about aging in general, and you're probably like, um, that's us. We're here for about nutrition, about weight. So I want to talk a little bit about spectrum and nutritional disorders because talking about them is very different depending on which side of the spectrum you're, you're dealing with. So my fancy graphic. On one end, you have undernutrition. We are not talking about that today. The Identification, management, strategies, etc., are, are very different than those on the opposite end of the spectrum, overweight, and the term obesity, which is not a favorite one of mine. As I say, I didn't make, the, make it up, but it's one that is used as classifying as a disease by the American Medical Association, and all we've done some, we've actually done some studies here that really, in particularly in older adulthood, or older adults hate this term. Our providers hate this term. But unfortunately, still using that term, which is the not... The only one that's worse is morbidly obese. Yep. <laughs> no, you're, and you're, you're, ab and you're absolutely correct. Again, I'm not going to get into this, the, the semantics and the stigma thereof, but I'm going to use this word as a full disclaimer just because this is what, we're, what is being used in the literature and in when we talk about over, overweight. So, I go to my favorite source of Wikipedia. Well, it's my, actually my nine-year-old son's favorite uh, dictionary at this point. So what is obesity? Obesity is a medical condition in where excess body fat has accumulated to the extent that it may have an adverse effect on health, leading to reduced life expectancy and increased health problems. So that's the definition. Wikipedia, Webster's Dictionary, they're all the same, right? So in clinical practice, when we talk about determining is someone classified as having overweight or obesity, the measure that, we, that clinicians use is, is the term body mass index. You may have heard that uh, and, and potentially seen that in your medical record. So this is weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. And this is actually coined and was classified with, by the World Health Organization decades ago. So it's actually really easy to calculate this. Uh, this could be a, a nice exercise. We won't, we won't do that today. But this is automatically actu actually, if you have access to your medical records, it's automatically calculated when your height and weight are measured uh, in the office setting. So when we think about classification, again, this is kind of a, a, a 101 course. It's important to 
understand there are four major categories when we're classifying weight and weight issues. The underweight, which is a body mass index of under 18.5. Normal, which is 18.5 to about 25. Overweight, which is 25 to 30. And obesity is classified as that of over 30. Is this based on age? This is based on body mass index. So irrespective of age. So you have okay. a 90-year-old and a 20-year-old, you're using the same classification system. And I'm so glad you raised that. You'll see why in a, in a few minutes. So, everybody uses BMI, body mass index. And this is actually a graphic here that shows over the course of the past four to five decades, the rate of individuals in the United States classified as having obesity has increased precipitously. In the early 70s, 10% of males on the left, females on the right, more females, but you could see 10% of males were classified as having obesity, up to 37.5%. Wow. It's pretty much almost quadrupled. Not as extensive in females, but still, you could see the, the trend is really is upward. And these trends are not leveling. So, and this is occurring globally, too. So we're seeing this in countries, a lot of the Mediterranean countries, with eating Mediterranean diets, healthy lifestyles, fully active, these rates are paralleling. So there's increasingly westernization of cultures that, in, in fact, were not privy to a lot of these fast foods or calorie-dense and uh, carbohydrate-rich foods. And unfortunately, this westernization is leading to, to increases in weight. Okay, so now that I've scared you about this, I'm going to scare you even more. That's what I do. That's a bit of a joke, but that's it. <laughs> uh, why is this important? When, let's take a step back here. And when we think about weight from a life course standpoint, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when we look at someone's weight over the course of their lifespan, age 25, 50, 75, and we look at if they live long enough, what their risk of having a disability is, the longer period of time that someone has, is classified as having overweight or having obesity, the higher the risk of a disability downstream. So this is important, you know, when, even though I don't care for a younger population, when my colleagues, you know, are counseling folks on weight and exercise uh, <coughs> strategies, it's important, and this is the reason why. It's two big things that, at least in my practice, that patients who are struggling with weight issues, a lot of older, a lot of my patients are not afraid of death. They know it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. What they're afraid of is, is their quality of life going to be affected? <coughs> and is their physical function going to be affected? Coming back full circle to that issue of independence. Now, this is where it gets nice and fun. So I'm a data person, and I apologize. I have a lot of little, <laughs> little figures like this. I put this up because those classified with, according to BMI who are underweight have a high risk of death. We know that. BMI of under 18.5, you have a high risk of death over time. Those who are classified with BMI of over 35, high risk of death over time. It's everybody in the middle. 
What happens to the folks in the middle? What happens to the folks in the middle who are over the age of 65? It's a different question. Well, this is a huge study that looked at over 197,000 people and looked that a body mass index of 33 is where the risk of death actually increased. Those who, the lowest risk of death, and you can see here, if I can get my little arrow to work. Nope, am I, there you go, there's the arrow. 27.5. So someone classified as having overweight who's over the age of 65, their lowest risk of death is actually with their BMI is about 27.5. But wait a minute. I think, I thought if you're overweight, we need to be, we need to get you to lose weight, and I'll come back to that. But this is an important point that these body mass index, using body mass index in older adults is different. This is coming back to your point, that we have not revised the classification criteria in older adults. So we know extremes are bad in the middle, Big question mark, and I challenge folks when uh, you know when folks have who are classified as having overweight, we need we need to think twice before recommending that. Uh, you know there may be other diseases. Again, it's individualized based on the patient, but don't just say oh overweight need to treat. Not necessarily the case. Okay, so I'm not going to belabor this point. Excess weight is bad for you. This is something that, you know, it affects almost every system in your body. It, in, it can leads to increased risk of cancers, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, the list goes on and on and on and on. So when providers talk and clinicians talk about weight, there's a, the reason is because it can cause disease downstream. And disease itself, if left uncontrolled or suboptimally controlled, can lead to disability downstream. And then we talked about, this is a study that we did here that really demonstrated impaired quality of life in older adults. So we, we looked at uh, about 130,000 Americans and found that having, being, uh, having obesity was related to a lower quality of life as compared to normal or overweight individuals. So again, based on BMI, and I'm going to come back to that. So we talked about what's important. It's important for folks to stay in their homes. We know that excess weight in midlife, this is a great study that found that, ex that those who are classified as having obesity had actually a 30% a higher risk of, having, of being admitted to a nursing home over their lifespan. And they were able to do this why? Because they use, this is a, from the Kaiser Permanente Plan in California. This is a network when most folks in this network stay in this network for almost for life. And they, they know, it's like almost like Big Brother knows everything about you. Uh, but they were able to do this study, and it's a really important study to say, you know, this is not good for folks. If the goal is for folks to stay at home, but in their mid-years, they're classified as having, you know, as as, be, as having obesity, and that's a problem if they're going to be in a nursing home in you know 20, 30 years time. Now, I'm going to throw a little monkey wrench because that's what I like to do as well. 
big issue here is that what happens when your folks are in a nursing home? So, if an older adult is in a nursing home, BMI is actually protective. Hmm. I get that quite often. What's that mean? Meaning, having a high body mass index, classified as having obesity, if you're already residing in a nursing home, may lead to a reduced risk of death. And the thought there is because we, the, the thinking about physiology, thinking about if you are ill in a nursing facility, you have a little bit more reserve than someone who may not have as much muscle or fat to, to compensate for disease processes. Yes, but wouldn't that only be for those that are overweight, not that those for people who are obese? Um, so this study really showed that those who are classified as having obesity mm -hmm. actually had more res likely their mortality was lower and the thought is because of additional reserve from a fat and muscle standpoint. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm going to throw another curveball in a minute. So what changes occur with body composition? Because one's body changes with aging. Well, folks know you shrink. You age, you shrink. And we know that on average, patients will lose about five to 10 centimeters, which is about three to four inches from their adult height. More in females than in males over the course of the lifespan. So skip through that. So what happens when your BMI, which is your weight, divided by your height, when your height changes, that denominator goes up, and guess what? Messes up this whole BMI thing. Okay. So if you know you're going to shrink, you've got to lose your weight first. That might help. Or along with the shrinking. But what we haven't talked about is this BMI term also accounts for muscle. I've been alluding to body mass index as a marker of weight and of obesity. But it actually also accounts for muscle. And this is where it messes things up with all the studies that I showed you. Why? Because everybody's using BMI. So we're using BMI, great. And I'm going to show you why BMI is not a good marker. One of the reasons is as you age, you lose muscle mass. And for those of you who are interested, I'm going to be talking about that in the fall, a separate les lesson. So you lose muscle. Remember this guy? Arnold Schwarzenegger, back in his day, flexing his muscle. I have to introduce a little bit of humor, right? <laughs> so I'll be back, back in his Terminator days, and oh my back. So there's a huge change in body composition. He lost a lot of muscle. Now, I am Greek, so of course, like in my big fat Greek wedding, Everything comes from, from, from Greek origins and Greek history and Greek words. So Greek, the word sarcopenia is the same as loss of muscle mass and functional aging. And sarcos means flesh, penia means loss, and you really lose a natural tendency of losing muscle mass and strength with aging. When you look at what the world record holders are for weightlifting, now, I'm not a weightlifter, don't ever intend to be one, but, when, but I thought this was kind of interesting. 
not only you know which countries are you know world record holders, but you see those aged 35 to 39, they're able to lift 295 kilograms. That's about 660 pounds. That's the world record holder for that age. But you look at those over the age of 80, the maximum is 90 kilograms, almost about 200 pounds. So your amount that you can, your strength actually drops naturally with aging. This is kind of seen in another way, whereby early in life, you build muscle, adult life, maintain muscle, and then after the age of 60, really what happens is that you, you gradually lose muscle mass. This happens, it's normal. The extent to which you lose muscle, though, is extremely important. Because everybody is individualized, everybody has a threshold where you drop below that threshold, you develop a disability and impairment. So your role, your goal, and this is, I'll show you this a little bit when we talk about physical activity and physical exercise, is you can adjust this threshold. So yes, you lose muscle mass and muscle strength with aging, but you can also change this threshold so that, so it actually takes more for you to develop an impairment if you do the right activities. This is fascinating. So, oh is BMI accurate? Uh, that's, why I put this, that's why I put the big black box here to cover uh, the parts. So, this is someone who has a lot of muscle on the that's line. That's not for real, though. That's not a real person. It's oh, good. <laughs> oh, what a relief. <laughs> On the right is my aunt, who she, she passed away about two years ago at the age of 107. No. And she was in my dad's village in Greece. And when we saw her, I had seen her four year, uh, two years before she passed away, so she was about 105. And she was dancing with me. Mm. Doing the j Greek jig. Greek dancing, and for those of you who know of anything about Greek dancing, it's pretty intense. Yes. I can only do so much myself. But big differences, right? A lot of muscle on the left, not so much muscle on the right. You calculate their BMI, he is classified as having obesity. Mm -hmm. She is not. Um. Really important. So BMI accounts not only for fat, but also for muscle. And this is the problem with BMI. So, little, little bit of a thing here. We did a study and we looked at the entire US population, you know, the sample, who had measurement of body fat. And then we looked at their BMI. And we saw what proportion actually were we able to accurately use BMI to assess if someone was had a, a true obesity. And we found that BMI only correctly identifies obesity in both males and females about 30%, 30 to 35, well, 38% of the time. So, coming full, I'm trying to come full circle here. We're using BMI in clinical practice. Why? I'll come that's the next slide. But it's not great. Not it doesn't accurate. account for muscle, and it's really bad in older adults. The ability to assess, correctly identify obesity and, and, and excess fat in older adults, particularly those of the age of 80, is, is actually it's in the 20% range. <clears throat> Not a good marker. What, 
can I just ask, she brought that up, that morbid, morbid obesity. What's the difference between obesity and the morbid? So that's, a, that's a great Is question. Is there a number? Yeah. So I'll just repeat the question just for, because we actually have a, an audience uh, streaming live here. So um, obesity in general is classified as a body mass index, a BMI of over 30. Mm -hmm. And then when we classify, you can subclassify obesity, class one, two, and three. Class one is a BMI of 30 to 34.9. Class two is 35.0 to 39.9. And class four is really, or sorry, class three is a BMI of 40 plus. And that's considered the morbid? Correct. And then, and then, you know, if you really want to get more granular, and again, a term that I personally don't really care for, because at that point, it makes no difference to further subclassify, I think, and it only creates inherent angst amongst patients mm -hmm. and providers, is super obesity. Mm. And I, and, you know, I've seen that documented and not too happy with that term. You know, I, you know personally, I think once you're classified, you know, once there's a classification, can use that, but I, I don't think that adds to the, the value going forward. So, why use BMI? Easy. Did I say easy? And easy. <laughs> and it's cheap. Of course, in the healthcare system, we want cheap, easily thing, done things. There are other ways to assess one's body composition, to measure fat, muscle. They're expensive. And of course, in our lovely healthcare environment, if, if it ain't paid for, no one's gonna do it. So, you know, there are executive health programs in the United States. I, I, so I did all my, uh, my, uh, my residency and fellowship training at Mayo Clinic. There was an, uh, an executive health program that where folks wanted to pay 1,500 bucks, they were able to pay 1,500 bucks, and they knew exactly what their fat composition, what their central fat was, what their muscle mass, and, and they were able to get that really fine-tuned information. But from a clinical standpoint, we can't do that right yet. But we're still using it, but it, now this is, I'm hoping I presented an, a, some evidence here to say, this is not the be-all and end-all. So you've got to be really cautious about that. So are there any other measures that we can use? I'm a big advocate of waist circumference. Why? Because we know waist circumference around the waist, actually we know that that could be a marker for weight, excess weight, and, uh, and can be an alternative to BMI. And it is also, we know that it is related to disability and to adverse, you know, uh, poor outcomes, including nursing home placement and death downstream. Uh, the other advantage, anyone can do it. It's cheap. It's a tape measure just takes an extra minute of time in the clinic. So we're not currently doing that, but there are some clinics that are actually measuring waist circumference. Okay, so this is a question I get quite often. So I'm all, I'm all about recommendations, but recommendations are just that, recommendations. It has to, all recommendations in my mind have to be individualized to the patient. So just because a big society says X doesn't mean you need to do X on every single patient of mine. It needs to be individualized and engaging patients in having that discussion 
put all the cards on the table, let's talk about this, what's right for you and with, with your goals. So this was important though, because in the past there was a real <clears throat> strong push to say, well, if you're over the age of 65, no, no need to lose weight. Don't go losing weight, it's dangerous. They came up, this is the National Lung Blood Institute. Age alone should not preclude treatment for weight loss in adult men and women. But care must be taken to ensure that any weight reduction program minimizes the likelihood of adverse effect on bone or other aspects of nutritional status. And I'll show you that. So what you need to do, what a, a clinician needs to do is evaluate the potential benefits of losing weight for day-to-day -day functioning and the reduction of future risk. So there are folks that you need to recommend weight loss for reduction of blood pressure, cholesterol, improvements in diabetes status and the like. But you also need to engage patients in motivation and we'll talk about that. Now, how, how good is the evidence that weight loss should be recommended in older adults? Well, that's a question I asked, and our research group here asked. And believe it or not, we only found six studies that really were good, solid evidence that we can then say, okay, this is what the research shows, and now let's take it to the or patients in the clinic. Six studies is not a lot. When we think about cholesterol studies, hundreds of cholesterol studies. So just to give you an idea, this is in its infancy in terms of getting good solid evidence and data. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing because this is, this is of an interest to me and I want to be able to try to help patients back in the clinic. What are elderly RCTs? So, uh, so another thank you for picking up my, RCTs are randomized controlled trials. So randomized controlled trials are really the gold standard of clinical trials. Okay. So essentially what we're doing here is we are saying we want you in a study and we want to going to put you in either option A or option B. Option A being our intervention, whatever that may be. Option B being a different intervention, but we're not going to tell you which one you're in. And it's kind of by random, by chance. So this is an interesting study that actually I I came across this last year kind of when I do my literature reviews and read my journals that pile on my floor at home. But I came across this and I was glad to see this actually study was, was actually selected uh, by the, at the American Geriatric Society meeting about three weeks ago as one of the key studies that came out in the older adult literature in 2016. What this study showed, it showed that over a 16 year period of time, or 26 year, sorry, uh, 26 year period of time, those individuals who ate poorly, who did not exercise, and who were classified as having obesity, for whatever remaining amount of time that they had left before they passed away, they had a higher proportion of years with disability. So that ratio of overall total number of years lived, what proportion of time did they have that were disability free? You had any of those factors, you actually had worse function. So I come full circle, remember what I was mentioning, one of the important things that at least patients of mine that I care for are really 
care for about staying independent, keeping functional. So these are things that we can, these are in our ability to change. And that can improve one's function down, going down the road. So a colleague of mine um, at Baylor Medicine actually just published this really important study uh, about two weeks ago. Um, and what they showed is they showed that individuals who had, were on a diet at at least 500 kilocalories, and we'll talk a little bit about diet uh, coming up, engaged in 30 minutes of aerobic activity, walking, inclusive, did therabands or resistance bands, had, they were able to maintain their muscle mass, able to lose weight, were able to improve their quality of life and improve their physical function. These are all older adults. Answer. You may be gonna talk about this, yeah. but what if they begin using therabands at say age 70, does that improve their... Absolutely, and I'm going to come... I have a okay. study that I'm going to show that is going to focus on actually on that. It's okay. a great question. Mm -hmm. uh, as I like to say, no age is too late to start using them. I was introduced to them by my physical therapist, and I love them because yeah. they're so easy. You drape one over the doorknob. You see it, you know? Yep. And you say, oh, I better use it. I better use it. And that's what you need. You need those cues to get you to, to use them. So, I'm going to start transitioning a little bit here, but this is the one, one of the last studies I want to show you here, that intentionally losing weight loss actually has been shown to improve, to lead to reduced risk of death downstream. So, hopefully what I've shared to you here is two kind of ends of the spectrum. One, over a lifespan, the longer one is overweight, the worse it is in terms of function, quality of life, risk of death, then you lose weight, there's not, while there's not a lot of good quality evidence, intentionally losing weight can improve function, which is very important, and improve risk and reduce the risk of death downstream in, in folks who are struggling with weight issues. So, let's start a little bit more practical things. How do we approach losing or maintaining weight in elders? This is a question that comes up all the time. You need a thorough medical review. There's no doubt about it. I always say anyone who wants to lose weight, just give our office a call. Let's, let's chat about it, make sure it's okay for you. Because believe me, I've had folks who are underweight and want to lose a little bit of weight because they have that little bit of, you know, of central, central fat. And I'm like, you know, you don't need to do that. That's okay. I'd rather you focus on the exercise of the therabands or, or, or the like. You want to go through all medications. You want to see what do you what do, what do you as a patient want to get out of this? That's so important because you want to be able to figure out how can if the goal is X, how do you get to X? So now. It's an old picture of me. <laughs> well, I want to get back to my college weight. Too late for that. 
And my, the answer to the question, the, the, my answer to that question, let's stay away from that. <laughs> let's stay away from that question. My kids saw this when I was putting together the slide, the, the slideshow, and I have to say, my daughter, who's six, uncontrollably laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and then went downstairs, to, downstairs and got some old photo albums that are about 15, 20 years old and then saw my hair. You know, <laughs> the, after the, the, the big hair uh, dude that I had. So, <laughs> so I want to get back to my college weight. I, let's throw that discussion out. Not practical. Because often what happens, you end up gaining weight with age. And large, losing large amounts of weight is, can be very, is very difficult and really, from a motivational standpoint, if you don't lose that weight, you get discouraged and you're back to square one. So why does this happen? Well, guess what? Your needs, your calorie needs drop with age quite a bit. So uh, males and females, you can see at the age of 30, caloric needs are just over 2,000 calories. It's about 500, almost 500 calorie difference in males and about 350 calories plus in females. So the amount of calories drop. Why? Because your basal metabolic rate drops considerably. So your metabolism actually slows down. So that might be one reason why you're eating the same amount, but then you start gaining weight. Why? Metabolism has a lot of it to do with it. So what is the goal? Modest, 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 modest goals. I always say, Five to ten percent as a long-term goal, but let's start with five pounds. A lot can be done, and, and it could be over a two-three month period, not a two-three week period, not a one month period. Slow degrees. Why? Again, that allows the check-in. And the people, you know, the clinical staff, and I use clinical staff very broadly: physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, health coaches, and the like really engage and work with you to be able to achieve that, that goal by with weekly check-ins or bi-weekly check-ins, for instance. Mm -hmm. As I said, un avoid unrealistic goals. I personally am a believer. You set an unrealistic goal, you'll fail. Not, not something that you want to go down. Okay. So, really what should occur? What should you expect from your clinician? You should expect them to start the conversation. If you want to have a conversation about how to engage in losing some weight, first sit, ask, is it safe for me to lose weight? Secondly, they should be asking, well, what can we do to get you healthy? And what are your goals? So you see those two questions. Who's answering? You are, as a patient. So part of successful weight loss efforts is really engaging patients and engaging them to come up with their own solutions. Hard, very hard. And, and I see my, my, my job as a clinician is really to facilitate and to motivate and to engage. The rationale for non-numeric goals. Stay away from the number. There's increasing literature now and a bit more of a drive to say, forget about the number, the number's a number, you don't have control over a number, but you have control over a behavior. So that is easier to latch on to than to a number. And focus on, again, for older adults, I, I come back, you've heard me say this, function, quality of life, function, quality of life, so important. 
and find out how important is it in, to, for you to lose weight or for you to be able to walk across the hallway or walk, walk to the next building, for instance, just giving random examples. How confident are you? What will it take for us to get you from a confidence level of 3 out of 10 to 7 out of 10? Who can answer that question? I'm not answering that question. That's too much work for me. <laughs> but it's really engaging patients to say, you're the one who can, only you know what it'll take to go from a three to a 10, or a three to a seven. And I can give you tools to get you there. Mm. So, a couple ballpark things here in a medical evaluation, looking for red flags, social history, very important, recent, changes in status, hospitalizations, medications, I'm going to come back to that, alcohol, tobacco. Alcohol often is, is something that I'm going to, in, in full disclosure, I have been burned on that in terms of when I have patients that are drinking, you know, two, three, four drinks a night and can't lose weight. Those are empty calories. And again, I'm not going to go into the whole alcohol that's outside the scope of this talk, but these are some things that are low-hanging fruit that you can try to work on. And then, importantly, diet and social history have to, you know, you have to figure out what has a patient tried, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and, you know, and to kind of stay away from the things that haven't worked. I put this up. Why? Because I want to make a note that we know that as patients age, the number of medications that they take increases and increases and increases. It goes from having a blank page when you go to the doctor, to one page, to two pages, to three pages. And the reason this is important, and I put some examples here. These are some examples of medications that lead to an increased propensity of gaining weight. So you, people can gain weight with these medications. And again, it's a catch-22. You may need a medication for a medical problem, but, you need, but these are some medications that in patients that are trying to lose weight, you want to work with your clinician to be able to say, is there an alternative that I can take other than this, these medications? And these are just some examples of these. At least across the street, what I can say, we're privileged that we have a clinical pharmacist now that has part joined our team. So anytime that we have questions of medications or if someone has a really long list, they're able to, they, you know, you visit them like you visit, you know, a, a clinician. They go through all your medications and they make good, great recommendations. Actually, how do you access him? So you just need to ask your primary care provider, and they can refer you accordingly. Is he in internal <clears throat> medicine? Or? She's a pharmacist, so she's a clinician, clinical pharmacist, mm -hmm. uh, who is in the section, our section of general internal medicine. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it, it, you know, I have to say, I. I was privileged when I was doing my geriatrics training that we had an embedded pharmacist in our in our geriatrics practice, uh, and I was I was so delighted to see that you know that we were, we were able to facilitate that here. Absolutely. It really has made a difference. Yeah, it's a huge step forward. So this is something that I would say a lot of folks don't think about: food and financial security, and a lot of more clinicians don't think about the fi financial bit of things. Why? A lot of patients that we care for are on fixed incomes. Fresh food and vegetable, very expensive. Processed food, not as expensive. 
Medications, really expensive. And I have patients that say, you know what, I need to take my medications. So they scrimp on proper foods that they're eating. And this is again, it's not one person, i.e. a physician or a nurse or a nurse practitioner that is gonna be able to solve this. It's really about team-based care to be able to kind of really find what resources are available to help individuals kind of circumvent these, some of these uh, social challenges. Now, benefits of dietitian are, I don't need to kind of share that with you. If anyone is serious about doing or engaging in any type of weight loss strategy, engaging and working with a dietitian is so important. From a motivational standpoint, they know food. And I'm gonna tell you, physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants, we can, we're at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to nutritional knowledge and management, but there's no, I think there's no formal nutrition curriculum in medical school. There, I can tell you there's absolutely no training in residency programs. <clears throat> we are lucky actually, one of our, our dietitians that's working with us here in the center is actually trying to uh, introduce a nutrition curriculum here at Geisel, which I think is, is really is needed because this not only affects weight, but it affects blood pressure, cholesterol, a bunch of other metabolic issues. And I, like, I personally, as a, sorry, I'm going off a little bit on a tangent, philosophical tangent here, but as a primary care doc and geriatrician, these are skills that thankfully I've acquired some. I've, I, know, I know I have a, a ways to go, but these are skills that are, there needs to be a core set of tools for that every provider needs. Now, thankfully again, we have embedded dietitians within our practice, probably not as many as we need, but it's a good start to be able to kind of see what kind of diet, where can we change things? Is there a cooking issue? You know, are you cooking accordingly or not? And then there are a variety of different methods when we talk about monitoring your diet, meaning paper records, smartphones, there are a lot of apps, you know, on your smartphone that you can that can take a picture of your food and voila, it kind of tells you what you're eating and how much you're eating and the like. These work, but you got to use them. I can tell you personally, I've used it. Great when I used it. After about six to eight weeks, I'm done. <laughs> My wife's still using it. She loves it. It just—it's one. Of, it's everybody's individualized. Okay. There's a something called the plate method. You can see veggies should take about half the plate. Starch is about a quarter. Protein about a quarter. And it's really about food choices and in, in portion control. What was the last one? Oh, a calorie deficit. Yep. Can I ask a question? Absolutely. On this portion control, yes. I took a healthy living with chronic condition class, a great class. They said, read your labels, only eat one serving. 99% of the class couldn't live off that one mm -hmm. serving. It's all moderation. And it, what type, it depends on the type of serving. Is it one serving of starch, one serving of nuts? one serving of X, Y, and Z. And this is where working with a dietitian to be able to kind of create diet plans for you is just, it's so important. Okay. Yes. Um, we hear a lot about using 
turmeric and different spices. Mm -hmm. Is that, what do you think about that? Great question. Um, and unfortunately, what I can say from an evidence standpoint, yeah. we don't have the evidence to say that works. Okay. That said, do I say, no, you shouldn't use it? No, I don't say that. Yeah. You know, I think the jury's out on that. I, I've been using it for five years, and it has made a huge difference. Yeah. And my husband now does it, and it's helped him tremendously. But it, within a month of starting to take, not turmeric tablets, I take fresh, organic mm -hmm. turmeric, if I put co-op and mix in water. Within a month, my inflammation in my knees went down. Wait, it was very visible. Did you wow. and, and there's a lot of, you know, again, I'm not going to get into the complementary or, or, you know, nutritional supplementation. Uh, that we get that's a could be a whole different discussion, but what we know is that there's not a lot of good evidence with regard to that, and we know that patients have had great experiences in, in terms of you know their own symptoms or you know uh, uh, self-reported quality of life when they're taking some of these uh, these uh, non-medication or non-conventional. Um, you know supplements. Mm -hmm. uh, we need we need more more studies to definitely say yes or no. Mm -hmm. So I, my my approach is really when it comes to you know any of these nutritional supplements or complementary alternative medicine, as long as they're not on heavy duty medications that have potential interactions, I say I can say as a provider, I, I'm not going to wreck yay or nay it. And I'm not a politician. But that's a very good point because um, it's easy with all the kinds of good, good literature one can read about, oh yeah, turmeric or garlic, oh my gosh, yes, and not be able to take into consideration oneself once the chemical issue of our medications that we're taking in, the interaction of those things. Yep. So how would one resolve that? Nutritionist? You can. Um, you know, Not resolve it, but I mean... No, 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 mitigate it. Um, well advised. The, and this is where you need to have that discussion with your with your clinician. For instance, I'm going to give it again a, a sidebar example. Patients of mine that are on Coumadin or warfarin, the blood thinner, or any blood thinner for that matter, I usually say, hey, you know what? The potential for an adverse effect with a, a supplement is not known. The last thing I. Mm -hmm. Unknown. Yeah. The last thing I want is for you to go bleeding out on me. Yeah. Or you to have a stroke because it eliminates the, the, the risk of thinning your blood out. At the end of the day, again, my approach with my patients is we put everything on the table, pros, cons, and you know, ultimately it's, it's the patient that will make that decision as to whether or not they want to take it or not. And if they ask me what, what I would do if, you know, if, I were, if you were my family member, what would you recommend? Well, the first answer I would say, my family members never listen to me. <laughs> and then the second thing is, you know, it's really it's an individualized decision. Yeah. It really is. Is there any formula for uh, protein? I'm going to come to that. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to come to that. Formula for protein. So, um, and if I don't answer the question specifically that you're thinking about, you just... Shout out. But I, I do have a, a section on protein here. You guys doing okay? Yeah. Okay, great. So diets. This comes up all the time. Well, I have this great diet or that great diet or this great diet. Talk to your doc. Talk to your team. 
I, I like to keep things simple in my mind. I like to keep things simple. Why? Because I'm very well used to the DASH diet, which is used for blood pressure management, but it can be used for other, even weight management, the Mediterranean diet. I'm Greek, go figure. <laughs> um, but I know these diets backwards and forwards. And the reason I know do, I do that so I can become very familiar, I can share with my patients the evidence that these do work. The issue, I think, with diets is about not the diet itself. There's no one magic diet. It's sticking to it. Yeah. That's the hard part. What is worse? It's the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. I like DASH better. What? Tell us what that is. Great question. So it basically it's lots of fruits and vegetables. Try to eliminate all you know processed foods. Reduce the amount of salt, and then and, and try to res, uh, you know some have some modest calorie reduction as part of that. Protein. Now that's. I'm going to come to that. You're going to see that the majority of diets that have insufficient amount of protein for the needs that are needed in older adults. And I'm going to come to that. I don't want to, I don't want to give away my thunder yet. Uh, we talked about monitoring. They work. If you are conscientious enough to write down everything you eat, monitor your calories, either paper or electronic format, this will work. It's a sustainability to be able to keep it going is really hard. So the food log we talked about, reduce survey sizes, eliminate high-fat snacks, <clears throat> really important. Um, and as I mentioned, it's not about what diet. The Mediterranean diet works, the DASH diet works, the Atkins diet works. This study actually demonstrated that irrespective of the diet that you took, you, all of them you lead to weight loss. But what happens is, is the sustainability, do you maintain that weight, is individualized not on the diet, but on do you have a health coach? Do you stop cold turkey? Do you not come in with your you know, provider to check in on things? You need that human interaction. And that's the, what I'm realizing more and more in some of my work, that you can have all the gizmos in the sun, but if you don't have that human on the other end of either the phone or face-to-face, -face, yeah. it ain't gonna work long-term. Yeah. Can I ask, I don't know if you can answer this or if it's even appropriate to ask, but say, say you have, um, you're overweight, yeah. you have a blood pressure problem, which I think a majority of our overweight people have a blood pressure. We're probably all on medication for blood pressure. <laughs> okay, so you, you get onto a healthy diet and you lose some weight. Yeah. How do you know if you've hit the point where you don't need that medicine anymore? The doctor continues to give you a prescription for it. Yep and you just keep taking it, but your blood pressure is normal every time you go to the doctor. How do you know, is that because you're on the medicine or so because that's a great question. So changed that your food? Is what I, what I usually recommend to folks who have lost, so I had, I had a, a, a patient last week who had lost about 25 pounds, he was on blood pressure medications. Yeah, his blood pressure in the office was, was fine. And I said, to, I said to him, I said, you know, your blood pressure here is fine. But the blood pressure in the office is, if it's going to be high anywhere, 
It's going to be in the office. And I don't wear a white coat to have a white coat, high blood pressure, hypertension. I, I ditched that a long time ago. But what I say to him, I said, I want you to check if you want to be, try to get yourself off. And that's a goal. That's a patient-specific goal. If your goal is to try to get you off the medications and to see, do you really need the blood pressure medication? Then check your blood pressure two, three times a week. Write it down in a log. Next time you see a doctor, say, this is what I'm at. Can I try to reduce the dose? That's, what, that's the approach I take. He did that. He lost 25 pounds and was able to greatly get yeah. off of some of his yeah. medications. And that's not unreasonable. I, you know, I look at medications and I say, okay, they're there for a reason, but if you can try to reduce them, it's Great. worth a go, a, a, a time limited. Yeah. Give it a time. You know, if you're checking your blood pressure and the blood pressure is still, you know, on the upper range of normal or exceeds what is your target on the lower dose, well, then, you know, that it was an experiment. Experiment didn't work. And we go back to square one. But is it dangerous to go off the medicine? So what I'm going to recommend is that's a great discussion for you to have with your, with your mm -hmm. physician and your physician's team. Um, rather than make an individual, you know, go, no, yeah, I, 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 I don't what? recommend, I, I would prefer, at least for my own patients, if you're, if you want to make a change, just talk to us before you do it. Don't just yeah. do it because sometimes what happens is people run into problems mm -hmm. and serious problems. So very briefly, there are some diets that have are low protein, very low protein. In older adults, this leads to significant problems with muscle mass, with fluid shifts. I don't recommend them. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about vitamin D here. Vitamin D, I put Superman up here with the D in it for a reason. I really do believe that vitamin D is important in weight loss efforts. And it also improves bone health, bone strength, and muscle mass. How much? Oh. Can it come to that? Yep. Okay. So vitamin D2 or 3 is a question. I like to think about vitamin D2 is your tank is empty, you need a filler. But it's not going to top it off. Vitamin D3, the tank is like half full and you want to top it off. So you can replenish your supply of vitamin D with vitamin D2. And then I usually have folks switch to vitamin D3 after that. Now. This is a picture of my little one a couple of years ago when we were up down in Florida. As you can see, nice sunny sky, almost like what we have today. But this is important because we know that we think, oh, we live in a cold climate, northern climate, we're indoors all the time, our vitamin D levels are low. Well, guess what? They're low down in Florida too. Oh my. So yes, sunshine helps, but it's not the be all and end all. So what we found, this study found was even living in the sunshine state, patients' vitamin D levels in the winter were still low. Mm, that's surprising. Now, a question comes up is, where can I get vitamin D? Because a lot of folks don't want to take supplements and can fully respect that. These are some examples of uh, where you can get vitamin D products. A lot in fish, herring, mackerel, uh, Cod liver oil, not my favorite. Salmon, and you know you can get in tuna. Vitamin D is also important from an osteoporosis standpoint. 
we know that it can reduce your risk of having a fracture by uh, over 22%. Question you, you asked was how much? This again is individualized based on the, on the person. You look at some of the professional societies, every professional society has different guidelines. So what we have decided in the clinic is we're sticking to the American Geriatric Society and we uh, have a uniform practice amongst, amongst the clinicians <clears throat> where we encourage between 600 and 1,000 units of vitamin D per day. And then depending if you're deficient or not, you may or may need uh, more than that. That says 4,000. That's the upper range of normal. Oh, okay. Meaning the most one should be taking per day. So at American Geriatric Society, is that the one? Yeah, 2, so about 2,000 units per day. That's what we should take? Up to that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you and get really, that in your food. And a lot of that you can get in your food, yeah. absolutely. But some folks, irrespective of what they're getting in their food, aren't reaching those levels, so they may need supplementation. And this is where checking vitamin D levels can, can help. And this is the approach that we take when we check vitamin D levels, just for, for those who are more numbers oriented. If it's really low, if, it, if you're deficient, we usually put folks on a once weekly high dose vitamin D for eight weeks, then we recheck levels and we see where they're, they're at. And then depending, we either repeat that or then put them on a thousand units. And then if you're in the insufficient range, which is the middle category, you can see 800 to 1,000 at a minimum. And then over 40, it's what you're doing. So if you're already on a 400 units, <coughs> How often is, is it good to have that checked? Once a year? So this is, the, this is where it becomes tricky. Medicare does not cover vitamin D usually as part of, mm -hmm. unless you have an associated diagnosis, which are? Osteoporosis, osteopenia. Uh, what is that? That's the stage before osteoporosis. Um, kidney disease. So there aren't many things that Medicare will cover. So a lot of, some, and, you know, and it's only been in the last couple of years that with our new electronic medical record that we're being forced now to associate a diagnosis with a lab test. So it becomes tricky. So if you've had low levels in the past, and you've been vitamin D deficient, great. It's on your diagnosis list, you can check it. I try to figure out how to be able to check it on, on patients at least once a year. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Over the, after the age of 65. So, the long-awaited protein intake. So, current recommended daily allowance is about 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. Now, guess what? I, I can't figure this out. How much is this? I, I don't know. That's why I need a dietitian. That's why I really encourage you to work with a dietitian. And what happens is very few older adults have adequate protein stores. You can see males and females aren't taking in the adequate amount of protein per day. Yeah. Now, the important thing here is older adults produce less protein than younger adults. What is pro produce it? Meaning their, your body makes it. Oh, so your body keeps on making protein. Oh. Well, and you're, turn over, you're turning over muscle uh -huh. and, and tissue and the like, but it's at a slower rate. 
and it's the the, the 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 amount is low. So you need a higher amount of protein consumption in your diet to achieve the same amount of growth. Oh. So you have to find out, like, look up how much is in eggs, and, how much is in this one and that one. And what was the uh, the recommendation again for older adults? Uh, one, so the recommended daily allowance is 1.2 grams per kilogram per day. And this is where it becomes really hard because then you're, you're calculating this and figuring out how much protein is really difficult. And how much a kilogram egg, is. It, which is, two, you know, 2.2 pounds per kilogram. And this is where working with a dietitian can help you with that. But you also said on the plate should be one-third of what you're quarter. eating. Yeah, but a quarter. A quarter, a quarter. A quarter. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> right. But, you know, there's snacks and milk and things like that, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to jump here. Physical exercise. There's your son, right? That's my son. Oh, he, was, he was two years old at this point. Um, so the most powerful intervention for uh, available for sustaining one's strength and improving muscle mass and strength during weight loss is physical exercise. you got to do this. Dieting alone is not a good thing, and I'll, I'll show you why. But what if you have a, a, a condition or something that keeps you from... Yep. There are other, so the, the, and this is where working with a therapist can help you work around that because it's not, I'm not saying everybody should be running marathons by any means, but there are I other types of activities. Pool, like walking in the pool yeah. could be very helpful. Absolutely. So there are other ways that we need to be, uh, to be able to kind of circumvent that. So I'm going to repeat myself. What I'm trying to focus, emphasize here, this is really important. Resistance weightlifting. And it has nothing to do where the remote control is. <laughs> so this is a study that was published by some um, colleagues of, uh, of mine down from Florida. I have to say this is probably the best evidence that we have, that we know. In older adults, this is a study looked at older adults over the age of 70, who were sedentary, did nothing. They were just not doing any types of physical activity. And they got these individuals to walk 30 minutes a day and to do the bands. And they compared it to a group that just gave them education, educational flyers, and that's it, nothing else. And they found that the risk of disability over the course of three years, the study lasted two years, over a three-year period, the risk of disability dropped by 18%. Significant. Very significant. So guess what? This didn't involve a gym. This involved TheraBands. TheraBands, you can get a pack of them for like 10 bucks. What is that? I'm going to show you. Um, and walking. Now, we have, we have barriers to walking in the Upper Valley. Completely understand particularly in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. But this is cheap. This is easy. This can be done by almost all. Now, we talked about strength. I'm going to show you a picture of the TheraBand in a minute. Aerobic and strength training are related, and they should be done in parallel. Okay, Not one or the other, both. Aerobic should be done pretty much most days of the week. Strength training should be done two to three times a week. 
And I'm not going to go into these details, but I want what the big caveat here from a strain standpoint is to start slow and go slow. Don't try to be the world record holder when you're doing weights and exercises. Now, a lot, some folks in clinics say, I, you know what, I can't afford weights. You know, while they're not overly expensive, patients may be on fixed income and they don't have the resources. So that's a TheraBand there, the green and the yellow, the bands. Milk jug, that could be used as a weight. When you're done your milk, fill it up with, go outside, put some dirt in, that's your one or two pound or weight. Or water. Or water. Now, I get looks of, that's just, you're crazy. What are you suggesting here? But this works. And this is low cost. Okay. Um, TheraBands. They are very helpful in kind of helping you with your strength training. And I'm happy to share these slides, and just in the interest of time, I'm going to fly through them. But there are a variety of different exercises <coughs> that you can do. To really, there are multiple areas of the body that you can strengthen your exercise. These are all available online. Uh, the national, if you Google National Institute of Aging Older Adult Physical Activity, and I, again, I can give these to Lori, and Lori can send, the, uh, send these out to you guys. Oh, that'd be great. Um, but these are publicly available, easy exercises to do. And what I suggest to folks when they say, you know what, I don't have time, I said, do you watch TV? They're like, yeah, do it while you're watching TV. So if you can't walk for one reason or another, Correct. So a lot of so some you you raise a great point. You know, patients that have bad knees, for instance, or bad hips. There are other ways: an exercise bike or pool therapy, for instance, that you can work your um, your cardiovascular system, but also your strength as well. What was the name again of where that's available? I'm going to show you a reference at oh, the end. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think it's my last slide. So. Couple of last things here. Short-term goals today. I wanted to so think about goal setting. I wanted to decide to be more active. Tomorrow, I want to find out where my exercise classes are in my area. There's a lot of publicly available exercises, senior centers, and the like, in the multiple areas in here, up here in the uh, in the upper valley. And then, you know, for someone, ask a friend to exercise with me. We know that being together actually is a good thing that engages each, each other. Okay, I'll move on here. I, I like this, oh, I'm busy. Well, guess what? You find yourself an hour in your calendar. See, what my, you, know, you can fit in an hour in one's busy day. A lot, you know, and it surprises me, you know, I really feel you know, my wife and I, we try almost mo most days of the week to try to exercise, you know, even if it's for 30 or 35 minutes in the morning. I figure if uh, head honcho CEOs and, you know, are able to exercise and work that into their day, you know, uh, us lonely people can, can probably do that as well with, you know, two small kids and the like. It, you know, it takes an effort. But, you know what, when I can, I can speak from personal experience, a couple weeks ago I was just had that upper valley crud, as I like to call it, that just, you know, was, wasn't was able to shake uh, too well. 
and I hadn't exercised for like two weeks, and I, I just felt it. You, you feel it. You feel so. You realize how much, how, how how well you felt when you stop exercising after you've exercised. So some ways to gauge your ex effort. That's a little too much. And if you could signal Pavarotti, then you're probably not doing hard enough here. <laughs> so I'm going to send you this link here. This is the National Institute on Aging Exercise Guide. I encourage if you have physical limitations and challenges, this is where working with a physical therapist can be really helpful because they can engage you in and tailor activities to those of your capability and function. It's a team-based sport. You're the center of the team. Clinicians only one spoke of the wheel. The goal here is to report back. If you're getting a symptom that you didn't have before, call, let us know. Last thing we want is for something bad to happen here. And the goal is really to be fun and safe. So it's about balancing. When you lose weight, you can lose fat, muscle, and bone. It's really important. When you lose bone, you get this, which is a hip fracture or a vertebral fracture, or a wrist fracture. This is one of my favorite pictures because it really characterizes how fat can infiltrate into muscle. On the left is a 25-year-old. they basically done a CAT scan of their quad quadricep. And on the right is a 70-year-old, um, I believe it was, or 60, a 65 or 70-year-old, Again, where you see the white is fat, and it infiltrates the muscle. Yeah. How much can we improve at our age? Very much so. You can? Yes, you can. How long does it take to improve? It usually takes between 6 and 12 weeks. That quickly? Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Just by it's worth doing. It is. Whoa. <laughs> you can see change, the beginning changes yeah. at that point. So how important is muscle in this process? Again, this is oh, the little kiddos you. flexing a little bit. Uh, I'm going to run through some of these here uh, a little quickly here because I'm a little, getting a little short on time. We know that without adequate muscle mass or strength, you'll end up having disability downstream. So it's so important, particularly in the weight loss process where you lose fat and you lose muscle, to try to mitigate and reduce the risk of you losing muscle during weight loss efforts. Um, I'm going to move on here. So there are folks who have obesity or classified as obesity and have reduced muscle strength. We know that this combination of folks is, a pro is, is, is challenged from a mobility standpoint. It's almost like the, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. I think I got that. I'm, I'm terrible at idioms, so I apologize. But yeah, you know, having having reduced muscle mass and excess fat, two together is a really a lose-lose combination. Yeah. And you end up falling. The risk of falls is, is almost threefold. So and people can't get up. And they fracture their hips. So I'm going to... So... I'm going to quickly run through here some other treatment options here. This question comes up very frequently. What about medications for weight loss? You probably have seen ads everywhere. Unfortunately, I cannot recommend weight loss medications. 
general blanket statement for those over the age 65. They have not been tested in clinical trials, they are not FDA approved, and they have a whole slew of side effects that can be problematic in older adults. So the jury is out. Potentially, in the future, if there are more studies, then in select patients, it may be helpful to jumpstart one's weight loss program. But currently, I can't definitively say that I can recommend them. This comes up, bariatric surgery. And this is actually, can potentially be in those with multiple medical problems and who have considerable amount of uh, medical, medical issues that could be reversed. In select patients, this can be potentially an option. Um, this, the folks here have a, you, I think they're the oldest patient that they've operated on is like 72 or 74. And um, we have been involved in kind of evaluating them you know, from an older adult perspective to make sure, are they getting the benefit that they really need to be getting the benefit of? I've diagnosed memory issues in folks that are being evaluated for this. Not a good thing, you know, particularly if, you know, you always want to look at what the potential life expectancy is mm -hmm. after this procedure and whether or not they're a high risk or not, because there's a lot of problems that could be done that could be, that it can occur with elective uh, surgery. Um, growth hormone testosterone. Um, the man on the right, if you haven't recognized, is from the, probably the Sky Model, the Sky Model magazine that no longer exists on airplanes, nicely photoshopped. Testosterone does not work. It theoretically should work, but it does not work and has so many side effects that we cannot, I don't prescribe this to patients at this stage because of the potential adverse events that could occur. Heart, blood clots, and the like. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. One of the things I, I use opportunities like this to, when I talk to folks is to talk a little bit about some of our current work that we're doing here in our, at the center. And what, as I alluded to earlier, a lot of the work that we've done is to look at the associations between obesity, muscle mass, and function in older adults. And we're trying to take this one step further by really uh, intervening and kind of, you know, testing modes and modalities to try to help patients engage in better health. That's really one of my goals as a, as a, from a researcher standpoint, to be able to say, how can I evaluate something and then deliver it and kind of implement it in my practice? So we've actually are, have developed a, a multi-component uh, obesity intervention, which we're starting this September. And what we're hoping to do is we have a nutritionist and physical therapist that will, and I'll show you kind of what we're, what we're planning on doing, that, and we're integrating over the course of the next three, four years, integrating technology. So first, working with our Department of Computer Science, we have uh, what I like to call a souped-up Apple Watch without the bells and whistles of an Apple Watch, which will be able to monitor your steps, your physical activity levels, and these TheraBands that I was talking about, mm -hmm. we actually have them, um, our engineering, uh, my engineering colleagues have developed sensors to be able to measure your strength. So, so is this a study? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a study, yep. For older people? For older adults, yes. How do we get in it? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> so, so we are actually currently recruiting, and I actually realize I don't have a sign-up sheet, but I'll, I will get one. Um, we are starting, uh, we are going to be 
beta testing, which means we're going to be testing our technology in the fall. So that's kind of separate than this, which is basically some in basic inclusion criteria, older adults over the age of 65, English speaking because we're going to need to communicate with, with them, that uh, they have not had weight loss surgery in the past and they have no life-threatening illness, meaning a limited life expectancy and a body mass index of over 30. And what we're, we're asking at the start is, because this is a research study, this is all free of charge, but I'll show you what, what will be offered, is that we have folks come in, uh, first, I think it's the second week of September we're planning, that we'll have them do some questionnaires, we'll have them walk down the hallway here at our center, uh, we have some funky little devices to measure strength, uh, so we can get some baseline you know, data to see, and then we obviously consent everybody because this is a research study, kind of risks, benefits, alternatives, and the like. Free to do this or not. And then the, the kind of the core crux here, and this is uh, supported not only by the National Institutes of Health that has kind of given us funding, but Steve Bartels is the director of our center, and Rich Rothstein, who's our chair of medicine, have actually invested quite uh, quite a lot of resources in trying to make this, make this a success, where we have uh, twice weekly, we're going to have physical therapy sessions, which initially will be, in, so you'll have initial one-on-one, -on -one, so you see where you're at, and then the- Everybody in the study? Yeah, so we're, have, we're, we're trying to recruit wow. eight people for this first wave. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, Donna Pigeon, who's our uh, resident physical therapist here, who's, who's phenomenal, will do a one-on-one -on -one with you, and then subsequent to that one-on-one, -on -one, twice weekly, for a course of 12 weeks, we'll have you come in Mondays and Thursdays for a 45-minute exercise session. And if you're disabled, I mean, it's hard to We'll you'll, adapt. You'll adapt. Yes. And then, what along with that... Sorry? What an opportunity. Yeah. So, and along with that, we have funding to have a... We have a nutritionist. Rima is our nutritionist. Who will, again, do a one-on-one -on -one session at the beginning. So, it's a little front-heavy, but then subsequent to that, and we're going to try to arrange it so you, it's kind of, you come in twice a week, so you'll see the REMA before the session or after the session. And it'll be a 15 to 20 minute face-to-face check-in, see how you're doing, look at your diet records, and be able to provide you that, that feedback. And then, so currently we're going to be doing this on Mondays and Thursdays. I believe it's 11.15 to 12.15. And then the nutrition session will be either before or after this. And then at the conclusion, so in December, and we've specifically crafted this, so we're not doing this over, right before, we're ending before the holidays. Mm -hmm. um, and at the conclusion, we'll be administering some, uh, some additional questionnaires, measures, and we'll actually, I'll be interviewing every participant to kind of get feedback. <clears throat> so that's kind of stage one of the study. And then stage two, we're going to be doing this with the technology in January. So we're pretty excited about yeah, this. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so there are multiple opportunities for those who wish to get involved, um, either in this program or in the helping us validate our technology or to do both. Mm -hmm. So so how do we sign up? Yeah, I will get there. So this is my prototype. As I said, it has doesn't have the bells and whistles of an Apple Watch, but the kind of the cool thing here is that this is Dartmouth grown. Mm. I have Can that go in the water? It can't. That's the only thing. 
Yeah, and that actually came up uh, in our some of our focus groups that we had done. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one of the things that we're hoping to do over time as part of the study is actually doing this via telemedicine. So, and that'll overcome some of the distance barriers and the weather barriers. So, I'm in my ideal world, people up at Derby Line who want to do this will only have to come down twice for your initial and your follow-up visit, and everything else will be done remotely. Mm. So, I apologize for, oh, I'm actually... You're on time. Right on time. Is, yes. Is this center that you keep saying, is that the center in Heater so, Road? No, this well is here. So we have. What so, is that? There's a weight loss clinic. So there's a weight and wellness center yeah. at Heater Road. Um, so my involvement there is I'm actually the director of clinical research there. Um, so I, I'm not seeing patients because I'm, m the majority of my effort right now is on this study. I know someone so that went through that program, that whatever that? her program was there. Was yeah, so that worked well. So is that the same? Spot? This is different. So the. Um, the program there is predominantly focused, uh, there are older adults that participate in that program, but it's pre predominantly for middle-aged, you know, and, and more, more employees. Yeah, she's really. younger than I am. <laughs> but yeah, this is all solely focused on older adults. Okay. Yeah. So we call in to get started. So what I'll do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna print, I'll print out a, 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 a sign-up sheet here. Great, thank Great. you. Thank so I, I want to thank everybody for your time this afternoon. I know it's a beautiful day, so I'm glad you guys are all, we're all able to, hopefully you learned something about the issues with BMI, why we're using it, what problems exist with uh, challenge with muscle and fat issues in older adults, and uh, some, some talking points for you to have. That, that, that's my goal. Uh, I, Always appreciate feedback, either direct feedback or through Lori. You can send that anonymously because uh, this is something that we have as almost as a recurring program, and I try to tweak it. I realize I probably need to eliminate a few slides. So no, that's, uh, I thought it was excellent. Fascinating. Yeah. So again, I, I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Is Brooke Judd under your... So Brooke Judd, she, I believe, is the uh, section chief of sleep medicine. So she's different. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be in Ramdell County. Oh.